Before we start today's episode, I'd like to make two special announcements. The first one is to express our gratitude to Andrew Smith, our summer associate, whose time with us is sadly coming to a close. Andrew has helped us tremendously, not just with the production of the podcast, but with our legal work more broadly. We wish him all the best in his future endeavors as an attorney. Second announcement, we'd like to send our best to one of our former guests who is experiencing some health issues. He knows who he is. We wish you a speedy recovery. Hopefully everything will will work out. You're in our in our thoughts and prayers, my friend. Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. It is a real pleasure to welcome Enrique Martinez to Global Law and Business. Enrique is a friend and a fellow alumnus of the University of Michigan. I'm also friends with his brother, who's also a University of Michigan graduate, and we're all from Puerto Rico. So Enrique, it is a real, real pleasure to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Truly my honor to be over here and, uh, and to be able to uh, discuss after so many years of us knowing each other, to be able to discuss a, a topic very close and dear to my heart. Let's get right to it. Tell us about yourself. What have you been doing after the University of Michigan? What is it that you specialize in? And tell us just um, a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, during my time at the University of Michigan, I uh, specialized in aerospace engineering, uh, did several projects over there, both for the uh, Air Force as well as for the Army while I was a student over there. And then when I left the University of Michigan, because of a project that I did for the Air Force, then the Army was interested in in recruiting me to work for them and become the lead aerospace engineer for drones, which at that time, it was just a a very early stage technology of unmanned vehicles, UAVs. So I started working with them around 2004. And and then did uh, was the lead for you know like I said uh, drones in until 2007 that then we started working with artificial intelligence neural networks uh, machine learning but all everything together combined with drones um, then in 2009 because of our interest in trying to continue automating our drones. 
Then a friend of mine gave me what is now known as the uh, Bitcoin white paper. And, and so by default, I pretty much became an early adopter of, uh, of this technology. Um, when I left the government in 2010, then I moved to Miami and started um, talking to different people that were at that time uh, developing this technology, developing what now is called the blockchain technology, um, trying to get to learn a little bit more. Um, and so it was uh, until, to, you know, I did that for about five years, talking to different people, learning to know, learning how we can use this technology, uh, sharing with different people from uh, different countries like Malawi in Africa, how is it then? People from different parts of the world can use this technology. And the main reason at that time for this technology had to do with how can you provide uh, access to the economy to people that were either on bank or have limited banking. Um, more than 65% of people around the world have either limited banking or don't have any access to bank. And so, uh, you know, we were thinking, okay, how can we use this technology so that people can, from different parts, parts of the world that, that don't have any ATM or, you know, a bank branch close to them can then start trading. And so I started in Malawi and I continued to different, uh, helping entrepreneurs in different parts of Africa and then Latin America. Uh, until 2015, which was when uh, the second biggest cryptocurrency uh, came to market, which is now called Ethereum. And, and then I started looking up into how we can use that new technology uh, to do uh, new things and apply to different industries. So with Bitcoin, initially it was all about the finance industry. Now with Ethereum, uh, and the introduction of smart contracts, which actually really comes from the uh, Bitcoin blockchain, but with Ethereum, uh, which specializes in smart contracts, then we started looking into how then we can apply smart contracts to provide a trustless environment and platform to people in different industries. And so uh, we started looking into how then we can apply Ethereum to uh, decentralize the internet, for example or how we can apply Ethereum uh, in the industry of water, or in, in, in the sense that you know, people can transact and, and send data, send information, and trust 100% that the data that people are sending uh, is not hacked, is not corrupted in any, way and, uh, in, in any way possible. And so in 2017, because of what happened, uh, in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria, then I became a, a more um, vocal and a, and a more aggressive uh, technologist of using cryptocurrencies in different industries, not just finance. And because of what happened in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria, then I started using uh, Ethereum blockchain to solve the issue of providing electricity in Puerto Rico. Uh, and this pretty much came from the personal issue of my mom not having any electricity and she has chronic asthma. So if she doesn't have any electricity, then she can, you know, uh, death was actually something very real for, for us in, in the family. So 
um, we started looking into, okay, how can we, then we can put solar panels uh, and then just have her, right, have electricity. And then people started saying, well, if you have a community of houses and all of them need electricity and you can provide solar panels to all of them, then, and, and storage batteries inside each of the houses, then something that can happen is that if one of the, if, uh, if some of the, uh, if some of the people inside those houses happen to go on a trip outside of their house, right? Then obviously the solar panels are going to continue generating electricity. Well, that, that house can become a supplier of electricity to other houses. And if that's the case, then how can you provide a system that allows for that monitoring and, and, and tracking of that electricity somewhere else to another house? And then the other houses will then pay in return the house that provided that electricity. And that is how then we started that project in 2017, which ended up uh, being published in Forbes magazine. And then I got invited to the United Nations to speak about that. Um, and then in 2018, a good friend of mine from the NFL uh, came to me. Um, you know, he at that time he had already retired and came to me and asked me, hey, Enrique, you know, how can you help because I'm going bankrupt? Um, I didn't know at that time, but now I know that more than 65% of all professional athletes in NBA, NFL, and MLB uh, baseball, they go bankrupt within the first five years after they leave the sport. And so I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe what we can do, right, I can help you to get revenue from different sources but then at the same time you still have to help yourself right but maybe we can start uh selling some of your memorabilia some of your collectibles and and the way we can sell it in a very trustless and frictionless way is by using crypto and maybe we can do it that way by tokenizing, quote unquote, tokenizing your collectibles or some of your, your memorabilia or whatever you want to sell to your fans. And so in 2018, then by default, I pretty much started working on, on what now is called the NFT movement, right? The, uh, the non-fungible token movement, which now different artists and, and athletes and singers and blah, blah, are trying to, to start using it. And, and so um, the way that everything has evolved, at least for me, has been because I, I am very passionate about different things that can be of value to people and, and finding ways that I can use this technology in different ways that I never thought about just to help them. And so uh, because of that, then now... I am very heavily involved with everything related to renewable energy and blockchain, sports and blockchain, water as well, because water has the same issue of the uh, renewable energy industry, that there's little investment, uh, but a lot of reward if you can provide investments uh, to those projects, water projects around the U.S., Puerto Rico, Caribbean, Latin America. Africa as well, right? So I am very heavily involved with all those at least main three industries of renewable energy, water, and um, and 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 then um, and then sports. Enrique, that is 
All fascinating. I have been on the fringe of a lot of those things, you know, kind of keeping an eye on it, trying to understand. I haven't read that crypto paper that you talked about. I have so many questions now that now that you've opened this up, right? It sounds like it sounds like you've been involved in these technologies that I'd say some really foundational technologies that have emerged in the last 20 years and you've been on teams or at least thinking about it in ways uh, probably five to 10 years before the rest of us even started reading about it in, in mainstream media. That's fascinating. So let's talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more, particularly, you know, you've been involved in the US, Latin America, Europe, Africa. Um, what do you see as the future of cryptocurrencies? How are they going to be used? Is it going to be more Ethereum-based where we're, we're not just using them for payment structure, but like you said, where we have a trustless system where you can go into it and, and, and the ledger is wide open and, and the, the finances are, are wide open and available and anyone with, you know, with solar panels and, and can get an internet connection can be involved in some way. So can you tell us a little bit more about what, what you see happening in the next five to 10 years? So before I dive into, into that, I just uh, I always like to give very briefly a little bit of, of the background of how is that we got here, right? So so around two thousand well seven and eight, right, with the uh, with the bust, with all the issues that we were having over in the U.S. with our economy and actually worldwide, right, the uh, the collapse of the housing market, uh, pretty much the collapse the uh, collapse of the banking industry. And the fear uh, in the U.S. by the Feds and 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 at the government level of the whole banking industry worldwide collapsing, then there was this group of people trying to find or develop an alternative to provide to regular citizens and you know households of how can they protect uh, their investments and and all the money that they have earned throughout their years so that you, know, you don't have people that have retired that then they lose pretty much everything. And by the way, this is a very real and personal issue that happened to my parents. They are, you know, in 2007, 2008, they lost a lot of their, of their, you know, retirement and money because of, of this, right? So uh, that it's used by, you know, at the, uh, by institutions to trade and uh, in the stock market. So, uh, there was this group of, of people trying to find ways to develop an alternative, and this person or group of people, uh, we still do not know, uh, but they have the, uh, the name of Satoshi Nakamoto, then developed or wrote this paper called the uh, Bacon White Paper, uh, which it pretty much lay out how then we can use different technologies, encryption technology, and, and different types of uh, computer technology to then allow people to save data and then have to provide some kind of value to that data. I always tell people that cryptocurrencies is not the first digital currency. Uh, the, you know, the fiat um, or the US dollar is already digital and has been digital for a long time. Right, we use credit cards. We have money using our cell phones, mobile phones, right? And so we have already digital money. But what cryptocurrency provides is a way to to send data that we call it cryptocurrency from point A to point B in a trustless, very seamless, frictionless and um, platform or way. And so the the biggest issue at that time. 
aside from providing an alternative, the biggest issue why this had not been developed before in the internet era had to do with how, you know, a, a very old problem called the Byzantine generals problem, which had to do with how can you then send uh, a message from person A to person B and make sure that that messenger has not been that message has not been corrupted, right? So uh, the Byzantine general's problem had to do with two generals trying to attack a common enemy. And, and then General A sends a messenger with a message of, to General B. Uh, and the message had to do for when, how, and where to attack this common enemy. And so when the General B received the, uh, the message, uh, from the messenger, then that General B has now a uh, a question to ask himself, which is number one, several questions to ask himself, which is which are um, is this message really from General A? Is this messenger really a messenger from General A? Is this message uh, has you know has it been tampered or changed in one way or another? Because they are, you know, they are not in close proximity. They are far away by one or two days of, of, of distance. And so that has been a problem ever since. And obviously now with the, with the era of, of the Internet and, and sending uh, any kind of data uh, between two people or between two servers or anything like that, you know, it's exactly the same problem. How do you know that the information that you're getting in your TV, in your computer, is exactly what is happening uh, from the source. And so um, then people were able to solve that problem in 2009, I'm sorry, 2008, with this Beacon white paper, which with what is now called the, uh, the blockchain technology. Um, and, and so that was one of the, the uh, big breakthroughs in technology that was, that was solved with, with Bitcoin. Uh, and then it was used to then be able to provide a safeguard and protection to any data in the internet, meaning that now you can start monitoring and tracking and making sure that you can keep for, you know, anytime as you want, this specific data, uh, which now we call, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And so people started using uh, cryptocurrencies back in 2009, 10, 11, um, and, and then, uh, to the point, initially, people thought, well, we're, you know, we're going to be using this technology, uh, the first use case for remittances, sending money from one country to another to help people, you know, to, for, for example, in the case of, uh, just, to, just as an example, uh, people in California, Mexicans in California that want to send some hard-earned money to their families in, in Mexico. Um, and then not have to get the high fees that the uh, Western unions or the MoneyGrams charge them. And so we thought, I thought as well, that then remittances was going to be a perfect use case and that everyone was going to use for remittances. Well, that was not really the case. <laughs> People started using it for that, but, but, uh, but not so much. Uh, and, you know, throughout all these years, then... Bitcoin has been used for different things in different ways um, to the point that now people associate Bitcoin with gold 
And what is the value of gold? Well, gold has, you know, is used for storage of value or, or, or storage of wealth, wealth preservation, right? Whenever the stock market goes down, typically gold go, gold goes up. And so that is how then people start saying, well, maybe we can use this technology called Bitcoin to replace gold, the multi-trillion dollar market of gold. And, and so that is right now how people are starting to see the future of Bitcoin. I personally do not think that that has to be the only future uh, of Bitcoin. Right? And there are several reasons why Bitcoin is a lot better than gold. Um, in meaning very simply that you can use it at any time around the world at any moment without any issues from someone in the middle that you need to ask for permission or you need to uh, request something to someone in the middle in a very trustless way. Uh, and so that will definitely still, I think, still be one of the uh, uses of Bitcoin. But I, I do believe that there will be other cryptocurrencies that are going to provide a lot of value um, in, in the future and, and in the present as well, right? That is the reason why I use Ethereum. Right? How can then you provide a contract um, to someone and have it a template that it's set and monitor and track and, and stamp in gold or stamp in <laughs> on paper, right? Forever uh, and not be corrupted, right? So that is the, the area of smart contracts, uh, which then it replaces any job that of uh, that is there in the middle to provide trust then smart contracts can replace those jobs which is another issue right the issues the issues of then those people that are in those jobs how can you then make sure that you protect them <laughs> or, or or somehow bring them to the job market so that they don't stay without jobs right so uh, just to give an example um an art curator an art curator is there to validate that a specific art is real. Well, if you can put uh, that art through a QR code, for example, or some other means in the blockchain, then you know 100% that that art is now and forever is the real one. Uh, and you don't need any more the help or the services of any art curator to tell you that, yeah, this is the real art. And that is one of the new ways that is starting to be used uh, blockchain in, in, in art, uh, blockchain in healthcare, right? Uh, why is that? If, some, if, if I go to the hospital uh, doctor office, anything like that, why is that my record is only at the doctor's office? What happened if I go on a trip and for all of us, right, that travel a lot, what happened if I go on a trip to, um, to Japan, right? And something got forbid, but something happens to me over there. Well, the doctors over there or the hospital over there doesn't know my medical record, right? So, but what if I can have in my phone or any way that uh, in my computer, anything like that, that I can provide very quick access to my medical records to that doctor in Japan so that they know, you know, what is some of the issues that I have had in the past. And so blockchain provides an alternative to that, right? The, 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 instead of having to wait weeks 
for my doctors in the U.S. to send a record to Japan, then I can give a temporary access to those doctors in Japan very quickly uh, for maybe one week so that they, they can have access to my medical record. And that is something that is being worked, worked at right now. Um, in the case of, you know, renewable energy, as, as, I, as I mentioned, right, you can start having trading uh, electricity from one house to another and exchanging electricity in a very simple and frictionless way. And so the evolution of Bitcoin will continue to be used as a store of value, uh, but who knows, maybe it will be used as well later on, maybe for remittances or it will start being used also for uh, smart contracts as well. And so the uh, what I see is the value of several types of cryptocurrencies going up. And then obviously there are right now, there are more than 8,000 cryptocurrencies out there. Most of them are going to fail, right? Because uh, there's just way too many that do pretty much exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, and so most of them are going to fail. Uh, there's a lot of crappy projects out there <laughs> that are trying to ride the uh, ride the wave but that happens with any kind of new technology right that happened in the uh uh with the, when the internet came out or that happened with you know emails and blah blah everybody just trying to uh to become the uh, the standard and the main one and, and ultimately some of these projects are going to fail some other projects are going to be bought out by bigger by, by bigger companies and and so but the good thing is that people are now going to have several things. One, an alternative as a, uh, to the to the problem of the sort of value or wealth preservation. Second, people are going to be able to start sending data, sending value, uh, or exchanging value um, across the internet in a very simple, fast, easy way and cheap way. Uh, across across continents uh, or across states as well, and, and so that opens up the um, the possibility to a lot of new projects that are that are being worked out in different industries: healthcare, arts, sports, um, water, right? The, the internet itself as well. So it's just um, I, I I say that we're still in its infancy when it comes to the the evolution of cryptocurrencies. Enrique, lots to unpack there. Let's slowly make our way through through some of the many issues that that you raise. Fascinating issues. One good follow up is to consider the main obstacles that cryptocurrencies face. There's there's certainly a segment of the population that that remains skeptical. Uh, I imagine that some of their objections are legitimate. Some of them perhaps are a, a result of, of not knowing enough about, about the technology. So perhaps you could address what these obstacles are and how you think we can go forward and help deal with those. Specifically, what can lawyers like us do to facilitate the process? Do you see a place for the law in the development of, of crypto as a way of enhancing trust on the part of those skeptics? 100%. Yeah. The, um, and, and, and something 
that is great right now that is happening and has been happening already for several years. Uh, but now with a lot more information out there is that I, I think that now we are having some very healthy skepticism of this technology, which is great. So before it was mostly fear, um, fear of the unknown. Now we, people are, going to, are starting to have some healthy skepticism of which projects I should be paying more attention. Right. So, uh, and that is great. We should always be, you know, have been a little bit skeptic and, and, and curious to some extent about any new technologies, you know, like, for example, artificial intelligence. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it can be an amazing tool, but it can be a very um, um, challenging tool for a bunch of different reasons. So, uh, but in terms of the adoption of this technology, um, there are several obstacles. One, um, and probably one of the main ones, is the ease of use. Right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of the platforms or apps that have been built um, to some extent or the websites as well have been built for engineers themselves. Right? A, you know, a lot of these uh, technology tools that have been used, uh, that have been created so far are, are mostly, you know, uh, or too techy driven, right? When you open them and you start playing with them, it, it, sometimes it feels that you need to have like a PhD to understand how to use the uh, this very stupid app. Um, and it should not be that way. And that's that's a criticism that I always, I, that I always have of ourselves, of our technology. We need to build things for the masses. We need to build things for the regular average Joe that that wants to use this technology. I sometimes say, yeah, you, we should be building for our grandparents, not for ourselves. If our grandparents can use it, perfect. That's that's a uh, that's a very big step forward. And so, ease of use with the uh, what is called the UI UX, uh, the user interface, it, it's something that needs to be improved significantly in order to keep bringing more people into the market into the, to use this technology. Um, the fear that has been uh, voiced by several uh, of the incumbents in the different industries has also not helped, right? So the fear of, well, this technology is, being used, is going to be used for uh, all, all, only for money laundering or, uh, or for uh, pornography or to buy you know, child pornography or for terrorism or things like that, which, by the way, it is a real fear, right? It is something that we should all be uh, addressing and paying attention. Uh, but I always say, hey, um, keep in mind that none of these fears, none of these issues are exclusive to cryptocurrencies. They have existed for a very, very, very long time. And so, um, you know, if, if you start thinking of some of the attacks that, uh, that we have faced um, and with, that somehow cryptocurrency was involved, for example, some hacks, some hackers that have tried to uh, uh, to ask for ransom. Well, you need to pay me X amount of Bitcoin if you want me to uh, uh, if you want me to unlock your computer. Well, what all those hackers have realized very quickly 
is that the $5 million, for example, that we, the U.S., pay, we recover them. So hackers, uh, uh, I always call, sometimes call them, well, they, 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 you know, they probably were not so <laughs> smart hackers because if they knew very well this technology, then they should have known that this is not the right technology for that kind of illicit and illegal activity, meaning everything that happens in the blockchain and in cryptocurrencies is being tracked and monitored. So for anything else, this is an amazing technology, a great technology to be able to track and monitor what happens. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so it's actually the opposite. Instead of being fearful of this technology, well, you know, unless you're trying to do anything illicit, but if you're not, this is the technology that we should be using. This is the technology that we should be looking at, you know, from in different government uh, agencies. And so, um, on that sense, it's very good technology that we have developed now. How can uh, the legal industry and all the lawyers, right, can start going about this technology? Well, um, first of all, I always recommend, you know, read as much as you can about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, those two are, are, are the, big, the big gorillas in the room. And, and so their usage, it's paramount in order to understand, uh, and the technology, right, is paramount in order to understand how then to, to go about any case. Um, any uh, state or city that right now encourage their engineers and their citizens to use cryptocurrencies is being is seen right now a a, um, a large influx of both investments as well as engineers. That happens in uh, Wisconsin. Um, that is happening right now in Miami. That happened uh, to some extent in Puerto Rico as well. That is happening right now in El Salvador. And so th the issue now becomes from the uh, regulatory point of view is, okay, if this is maybe a technology that we can use in addition to our own uh, central currency yeah, issued by central banks um, or, or by the Fed, right, in the case of the U.S. with the U.S. dollar, Okay, then how can we use the, the benefits of this technology uh, to in integrate it to our own currency? Maybe we should then use this technology and this technology now is going to be the evolution of what we know as the fiat currency. And that's a, that's a discussion and a decision that obviously has to be uh, ongoing from a state or country level. In the case of... Lawyers, if the only thing that lawyers do is only to create contracts, I would say be careful because you can be replaced with smart contracts. Right? But then what other value can you bring, can lawyers bring in to, the, to their customers that is not, cannot be automated? Right? Well, your expertise in understanding all of the law, all, all the different laws, Right? That cannot be replaced. Your, your, you know, your uh, skills uh, that cannot be replaced. Right? You being able to uh, to talk to a judge or to a jury, yeah, that cannot be replaced. And so, uh, you being able to adopt very quickly this technology and to offer it very quickly to your to your clients, 
in the form of a smart contract just to deal with very easy things. I think it's, uh, it's going to put that lawyer at the forefront of this technology is going to, uh, I'm sure, 100% is going to attract a lot of new customers uh, that are looking, specifically a lot of people now getting into cryptocurrencies, right? That are looking into, you know, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I, you know, what happens if I do this? Well, right, the law is not going to be different, right? The laws that have been established are not going to change just because of cryptocurrency right now. Um, but maybe you can start helping them in terms of the uh, transaction of those paperwork and all that data uh, by facilitating things in using smart contracts, right? Um, so there has there there are talks right now inside the cryptocurrency community of completely putting everything, all the different laws, in a blockchain uh, so that. People can very quickly access them and then you can create smart contracts very quickly and move forward. That's going to take some time. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the legal industry is extremely complex. And obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, preaching to the, uh, to the choir over here. Uh, but uh, being able to become a, a facilitator and and also an early adopter of this technology from the legal point of view uh, i think is going to be to your to your benefit enrique i'd love to hear your thoughts on whether the benefits of a bitcoin blockchain technology outweighs the uh, the burden of the energy production right i mean that's always part of the conversation you know do you think we need to lean lean even heavier onto renewables or what is the what is the way do we just suck it up and and say this these benefits from having this uh, decentralized uh, technology available around the world uh, outweighs the the harm that is caused by the, the sheer need of energy production to keep the the system running Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very good question. I mean, that's a question that uh, that we have been uh, dealing for some time, and and obviously one that came that came to the news when Elon Musk uh, said that he was going to stop using uh, or accepting Bitcoin uh, to for people to buy Teslas. The the ironic thing of of doing that of saying that is that he also spent. Uh, I'm not, I believe it was like 1.3, 1.5, something like that, billion dollars, billion dollars to buy Bitcoin. I never, he never sold it when he said that. Um, or I think ultimately then he sold, he, he admitted to selling some, uh, but and regardless of, of, of what was said at that time, um, some of the research that has been done into Bitcoin, for example, uh, says that more than 50% of all big, of all uh, the energy being used to maintain the blockchain technology comes from renewable energy. And so um, it's, it's definitely something that has been blown out, blown out of proportion. Yes, it, it uses a lot of energy, no doubt about that. Um, but if you start thinking of what is Bitcoin possibly replacing, right? Then it's just a very tiny fraction of of the usage and the value that Bitcoin is actually replacing. Um, in the case of, for example, gold, Bitcoin uses a very tiny fraction compared to all the energy that is being used 
to uh, in the mining and in the production and in the distribution of gold. And so, you know, when you start thinking of, okay, all the uh, trucks and to mine gold, they, they used to use a lot of, you know, diesel or, 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 um, or gas, right? And then to distribute gold and then to protect gold and then to make gold. Well, I mean, just if you take the example of, let's say, Bitcoin only is going to replace gold as, as an alternative as a sort of value, then, yeah, it's still very tiny compared to that. Now, uh, it is still a very good discussion to have because at the same time, we need to be concerned and we need to be aware uh, as, as a you know citizen of this planet of how can we continue to make progress in technology with, with the uh, less or with a very limited harm to, to nature, right? And so, and to the climate, right? And so, the way that uh, the way that we should continue to support and 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 to evolve this technology of cryptocurrencies, uh, I highly encourage the uh, the people that are involved in cryptocurrency, to mainly the miners that are the ones that are creating and 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 validating. These transactions and creating the uh, the Bitcoin, um, I had encouraged them to use renewable energy uh, to continue moving forward. Even though Bitcoin already uses a lot of renewable energy, and, and they're continue to use uh, renewable energy uh, in in the at, the at the level of two, three, four cents per kilowatt hour versus other sources of energy that. Uh, sales electricity at 10, 15, 20 cents per kilowatt hour, right? So, uh, or in the case in the case of coal that produces a lot of pollution, right? Still, the biggest producer of coal is not even the U.S., right? It's China. Uh, and so, okay, are we going to force China then? <laughs> well, yes and no. <laughs> How are we going to do it? How are we going to track it? Well, you know, that's a whole different issue. Um, but just to limit and to completely negate this technology because of its energy consumption, I think it's not uh, the right way to move forward. Enrique, let's turn to your work with sports and blockchain. That was fascinating to hear, not just in general about the topic, but how you got into into that area specifically. Very interesting to hear about how you were able to to come up with a creative solution to the sale of memorabilia, right? By by integrating a pretty traditional activity, right? The, the sale of physical objects with a uh, very leading edge technology. So I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, where do you see this particular area of blockchain going? So the area of um, tokenization, of uh, you being able to tokenize your own future earnings, for example, in the case of, uh, for example, Spencer Dinwiddie, a uh, NBA player from the Brooklyn Nets, he tried to do that, uh, and and then the uh, the NBA, uh, it's let's say that he's still working uh, with that case, but the NBA initially said that uh, or or told uh, Mr. Dinwiddie that no, you cannot tokenize your your contract. Um, and it's still an area of discussion because, you know, the NBA doesn't have any saying when it comes to buying a house, a $5 million house, 
uh, and that's perfectly fine, which you are, by default, obviously, you are already, um, you know, assigning some of your future earnings to this mortgage of this house. Uh, but then somehow, if I want to do it with investors then uh, or with anyone, any fans, then I cannot do it. Uh, and, and so that is something that that is now open to discussion. Um, in the case of my friend from the NFL and the very real case cases of bankruptcies, um, it, it's something that that allows them players or anyone that is facing technology that is facing bankruptcy and that happens to be uh, a a professional a past professional player or a current professional player uh, it allows them the opportunity to be able to sell some of their memorabilia or collectibles uh, in a very easy way now just like you said i mean collectibles or memorabilia it's nothing new i mean we have been collecting stuff since since probably <laughs> since since uh, since we uh, became humans, um, but um, the way that now um, you can transmit or, or send this collectible or this memorabilia in a digital form, or the way that you can track it, the physical asset, and monitor it and, and know that you're going to sell to someone uh, this physical asset, the real one, and that this customer or buyer is can can feel assured that yes, I have a guarantee that this is the real one because it's, it's in the blockchain. I think it's uh, it's an incredible step forward when it comes to um, being able to use this technology in in this specific industry, right? The industry of collectibles uh, and memorabilia. Now, because of COVID and what happened last year, then this evolved very quickly. The reason being that we were forced to be in a digital world. We all had to be, you know, hard to learn or how to get used to using Zoom and being in Zoom calls. And I'm sure a lot of us uh, were fed up already of Zoom calls. Um, and, and so, but we were forced to live in a digital world if we wanted to continue doing somehow business. And, and so, the NFT non fungible tokens or the you know blockchain technology applied to memorabilia or collectibles then became a very nice and, and easy fit solution for that problem, which is how can I keep selling my art? How can I keep selling my memorabilia? How can I do this? Uh, how can I sell my songs um, if I don't have the fans in the stadium? If I don't have the fans in the uh, you know in the arena, you know how can I do that? How can I still connect with the people that want to buy from me? Well, that that then became uh, the boom that we saw in NFTs. And so, what's going to happen is that it's going to well, it went up. Uh, now people are saying, well, you know, this was a little bit of a of a fad. You know, this was just something temporary. Well, yes and no. Right, uh, there there were some NFTs uh, that were sold, just like simple, very easy JPEGs, stupid JPEGs that uh, are GIF that anyone can get from the internet, and they were sold for five thousand dollars. And then the question becomes, okay, why is that I want to buy something that I can just get in the internet for free? Why is that I want to buy it for five thousand dollars? Well, some people did. Obviously, those people are now 
in the uh, <laughs> in the group that is saying, "Oh, this is this is a fad." Yeah, well, you you, you know you didn't buy the right stuff. <laughs> you, you you just you just got uh, you just went too fast with the uh, with the wave. Uh, but there were some people that were able to buy things that truly has a lot of long term value, and I see that as the evolution. You know, how can then you can put an experience, you can share an experience to your fans in the form of an NFT. That is the evolution of this. Meaning, just to give an example, uh, let's say that I buy some digital art, right? Some, like anything from Picasso or, or, or anything, right? Michelangelo, let's say, just to give an example, but in, the, in a digital form. And then I go to a hotel. Uh, I have my phone with me and I go to that hotel and I say, listen, I know that in my room you have 10 digital frames, right? Just the frames that we already, some of us already have in our homes that you can put any kind of digital photo into that frame and then it just keeps changing the photos every five or 10 minutes. Okay, yeah, you have some, some of those frames in my room. I happen to have 10 uh, NFTs art in my phone, which I'm going to give to you temporary access uh, to those to that art. And I want that art in the form of an NFT. I want that art in my in my room, in all of my frames, so that when I get to my room, my room is already customized to me. That is really the evolution of this, being able to customize uh, or to provide an experience through NFT which is which then is a validated and, and a true experience because you already know that what you're getting is the real one uh, through NFTs so that then anything that users do with that NFT becomes also, you know, part of their life. And so um, I, I see a lot of potential for players to be able to start uh, creating their own brand and create their own perception just because they can now have control in the form of a phone. They can have literally have a phone and you record a 10 second video to any specific buyer, any specific fan, and then sell that video to that fan uh, as an NFT. And obviously that fan will always know, yeah, yeah, this came directly and it's validated. Uh, this came directly from him. That's number one, right? That player has that access, that, that opportunity, or that artist has that opportunity. Now, um, at the same time, something that it's also the second step to the NFTs is that whenever that NFT is being resold in the secondary market to anybody, anyone else, well, because of, because of smart contracts that are embedded in the uh, in this technology of of uh, blockchain technology of NFTs then you can program inside the NFT that the original uh, creator of the NFT, meaning maybe the player, meaning the artist, meaning the uh, producer, whatever, right? That person can get 5 or 10% or 5-10% for the most part, royalty of that secondary market sale. Uh, and that opens up the possibility for that player to, you know, now I can have revenue coming from different angles because I can sell a lot of memorabilia that has value. Um, and every time someone, a fa that fan, resells that to someone else, then I can get some money. 
How is that being used, for example, with uh, tickets? Just to give it another example, Mark Cuban was saying, well, scalping is a big issue. Why? Because I sell tickets at $50. And then if that, if that game happens to be a very important game, then people are outside my, outside my setting selling the same ticket at $1,000. So what Mark Cuban is saying is, okay, maybe I'm going to, from now on, I'm going to start selling tickets as NFT. I might not. I might not uh, stop scalping, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to get some royalties out of that resale of that ticket. And then, okay, I'm still, now I'm going to get, grab some of that, grab some of that uh, uh, exchange of value, right? Because now I, I, now I get it. By the way, the 5 to 10% royalty, that can be programmed to be 100%. And then if you do that and you sell it to someone else... <laughs> Then you know the the original fan is not going to get, or the or the original buyer is not going to get anything anything in return, uh, because everything is going to be very uh, easy in a digital way. Is going to, that money is going to be transmitted? Is going to be changed? Is going to be sent to Mark Cuban or to the uh, the Mavericks and not to to the fan? Uh, but you know that is something. Or maybe you know, Mark is going to say, you know, I'm going to split it at fifty fifty. You know, since you are doing the uh, the work of selling the ticket to someone else, perfect. I'll, I might I might split the uh, the royalty, right? So uh, something like that. But that is there's a uh, those are some of the uh, future use cases for NFTs and and the way that we're going to start seeing this technology of blockchain smart contracts being integrated uh, into our everyday lives. So Enrique, this has great application. Now you're making me re- rethink my career choice, although not not with an entire twist, but <laughs> but thinking as an early adopter of the technology, like you said, people will still need lawyers to help usher them through this process, even if they're using smart contracts. They'll want to know how secure is it, how does it work, where are the terms and conditions, do those get changed, uh, you know, all of that, and in- including, I mean, this the idea that that the contract terms and the payment terms can be tied up in the NFT so that you can continue to get what, what's the equivalent of a license agreement or a royalty payment is, is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. So we're, unfortunately we're out of time. I mean, it's been excellent. We're, we're already, uh, I think at 50 minutes, which is, which is fantastic, but we still want to ask you for recommendations for the audience. Uh, Fred and I will share some as well, but have you read anything listen to anything, seen anything recently that you think is, is worthwhile and valuable for the audience to take a look at? Always start with the basics, right? Read the, uh, the Bitcoin white paper. Uh, the big, uh, there's a book called The Bitcoin Standard. That's a great book. Uh, there, there are different books of Ethereum and, and also Bitcoin. Uh, just go and get them and understand both types of blockchain so that you understand, okay, we, how to use uh, each one. Um, and also, I, I'll, I'll recommend for the people in the uh, in the legal industry, legal department, then definitely go and start seeing what's happening in Wisconsin and what's happening in Miami. You know, what's happening in Wisconsin with with the banking industry and and my dear friend Caitlin Caitlin Long, that is leading uh, an amazing attorney and she's leading the uh, regulations in Wisconsin. When it comes to uh, the evolution of cryptocurrencies in, in that place, you know, it's going to be very important. And actually, I, I have to correct myself. It's not Wisconsin, so I'm sorry to Wisconsin. It's actually Wyoming. And, and I hope that uh, Kelly doesn't kill me. But 
is Wyoming. I take a look at everything related to Wyoming and uh, and what they're doing over there in the bank industry. Uh, what is happening in Miami with the mayor of Miami, Major Suarez, now allowing uh, employees to get paid in cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and knowing those two places, Wyoming and, and what's happening in Miami, then, you know, you can start seeing uh, probably you start thinking probably about what's going to be the future of cryptocurrencies in the banking industry and also in other industries, right? So uh, highly encourage everyone to, to take a look at that. Uh, and, and if possible, take a look at some of the other projects out there that are top, top, massive projects when it comes to uh, smart contracts, such as Cardano. It's an amazing project. Uh, the uh, founder of Cardano comes from the group of Ethereum. Uh, also, one more, because I have to, this uh, new era of what is called decentralized finance or DeFi. Um, for the most part, DeFi is uh, right now evolving outside of the, of the U.S. because of regulatory um, obstacles in, uh, in Asia and in, in Europe. But uh, DeFi is definitely an area that um, that is that it will continue to grow uh, in a way of anyone maybe possibly uh, giving a loan to another friend uh, in a very simple way. It doesn't have to be a bank. Now anyone possibly yeah, I can do a loan. I can because I have some of my money. I want to do it to give it to someone else in exchange for obviously some interest or something like that. Uh, so, but. Uh, when it comes to legal, Wyoming is definitely in the U.S. leading the way uh, with Caitlin Long and everything that she's doing. Um, Jack Dorsey has written a lot about this, and it is a huge proponent uh, with his company Square. Um, and I, th I think that he mentioned just a few weeks or days ago that uh, that um, that Bitcoin and DeFi uh, is his priority right now with his company Square. So uh, it's it's happening very quickly, and the evolution of this technology is definitely going going very quickly. And so it, it might feel that you're drinking from a fire hose. Um, always good to reference Bitcoin.org, the website. Um, but just stay at it. I sometimes say to people, if you want to know how Bitcoin is behaving, its behavior, you know, give it a try. Try maybe five, ten dollars, fifteen dollars. Get get yourself some Bitcoin to see, you know, what it's how you get to use this technology, uh, how it goes up, how it goes down, and and then you, at the very least, you start getting used to some of the um, some of the advantages. And also some of the disadvantages, right, of using this technology. And Fred, what do you have for us today? A couple of recommendations today. The first one is one of our older episodes, uh, episode 47 to be exact, where we had James Cooper, who, who spoke quite a bit about blockchain, among other things. So if you're interested in this topic, take a look at that. That was released in, uh, let's see, March 16th of this year. So go to our website and you can find it there. My second recommendation today is another podcast called the China History Podcast. And I have been a listener of this podcast for a very long time. I mean, it's one of the first podcasts 
that I listened to. I've had the pleasure of meeting the the producer of that podcast, uh, Laszlo Montgomery. And as often happens, uh, there are periods of time when I have less time to listen to podcasts or, or I'll focus on other things. But every time I go back to the China History podcast, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad of, of having done that. If, if you have any interest in, in China, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Just this morning, I was listening to an episode about the Chinese Civil War. Um, and then you also have uh, episodes on lesser known aspects of, of Chinese history. A couple of days ago, I was listening to one of the more recent ones where Laszlo was talking about some of the Chinese communities in, in Borneo, uh, Indonesia, you know, historical communities there. So all these fascinating stories that are not as well known, although there is a lot of material on this stuff that is well known. So China History Podcast. Jonathan, what about you? I'm bringing up an article from The Economist. It, this is not highbrow stuff, but it's kind of fun to look into. The, the title of the article is The Secret Economics of a VIP Party. And the title was enough uh, clickbait that I clicked it and, and wanted to read it uh, because it it goes, it's, it's kind of a long form article, not, not super long, maybe a 15, 20 minute read, but it gives you a, an inside look into the world of the super wealthy, right? When they go out or they're, you know, they're scheduling a club or a bar for a party on a Friday night, um, how that gets set up, who is in charge, how do the pretty girls make it there and why do they come? I mean, it's really kind of an interesting look inside the, like it says, the economics of how these uh, that look like impromptu parties are actually put together with quite a bit of, of detail and thought and certainly a lot of money involved too. So if, you, if that kind of thing floats your boat, the secret economics of a VIP party in uh, Economist, it's in the uh, 1843 magazine for long reads in life. With that, Enrique, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. Fred and I were, were messaging each other while we've been there, uh, in this episode and saying how much we've enjoyed it. So we hope we can have you back again, learn more from you and explore uh, developments between now and then. Absolutely. Truly my pleasure. I mean, in, in all the industries that I mentioned, uh, there is an incredible, incredible, massive need for uh, experts in, in the legal industry that can help us, you know, engineers and, and entrepreneurs to guide us in, in, in this in this uh, evolution of this technology. Right. Um, and and th that is something that uh, that all cities, all states, countries should, should think about meaning um to be able to provide a, a a sandbox to some extent right an area for for all these amazing engineers to uh to stay to stay in the us to stay in puerto rico for you know in the in, in, in my case and 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 then be able to stay there and and program and help help uh bring technology you know advancements in technology to uh to the world because and, and to the citizen and for the u.s to always continue to be the uh, the number one leader when it comes to, to technology right and and that's something that uh that uh, that having uh champions in, in the legal world that can say that can give us that you know guidance uh, it's, it's definitely needed it truly has been an honor. I mean, I, uh, I, I like, like Fred mentioned at the beginning, I have known Fred for several years already. Decades, my friend, decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you guys are amazing. You guys are doing an amazing job. Uh, highly encourage both of you, Madeline as well, to uh, you know to continue this this endeavor of of creating uh, all these podcasts that are extremely valuable to right to your listeners to uh, and to anyone anyone that can um, connect your podcast and, and and take advantage of all this wealth of information that you guys are bringing. So kudos to both of you. Thank you. It certainly is fun. We enjoy it. I consider it a, a masterclass every time we get to sit down and talk to someone who isn't in our core area. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun for us and we're glad that everybody else can get a little benefit as well. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.